Hey there, all you muck monsters. Time for another episode of the show. And this time I've got my buddy Jeremiah Jones Goldstein here with me. You know, we're covering uh, some Brave and the Bold and we're covering Phantom Stranger, but uh, he wanted to jump on uh, and talk about this uh, recent uh, comic book buy of his, Supernatural Thrillers number one, featuring a, a muck monster to uh, uh, end all muck monsters. This is the first one that basically ever saw print, to my knowledge, and uh, Marvel uh, put out a comic book uh, that spotlighted this character. So Jeremiah and I are going to dive in on it, and we have a real good time. So uh, get ready, because after the break, we're going to jump right in. Welcome back to another edition of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. And it's another episode with another super cool comic. And I've got uh, my uh, frequent collaborator with me here to join me, uh, Jeremiah. How are you? I'm well, Billy. How are you? I am good. So you and I, I think you just uh, recently picked up this book we're going to be talking about tonight here. I've had it for a little while, and I might have actually had uh, the story in magazine form before I had the actual comic book, because it can be a little pricey. So uh, uh, why don't you talk about uh, your recent purchase here of this uh, comic we're going to talk about? So I was at the Baltimore Comic Con, and I was at the Tomorrow's Table, and they had one of their books, um, Swamp Men which is one I don't have. Um, so I picked it up and that was Friday night and I was reading it and it's the first bit in it is about this book, supernatural thrillers, number one with the <clears throat> thing that could not die. And I'm like, I had never heard of this story and I'm reading about it and how it kind of launched that seventies muck monster, um, genre. And, you know, I'd never heard of the short story. So I'm like, wow, this comic sounds really cool. Well, the next day, I'm going through the bins, and I, I'm at a dealer, and here it is, Supernatural Thrillers number number one, featuring it. And uh, I'm like, well, after reading about it, now I got to get it. <laughs> so I got it, and I read it that night, and I'm like, damn, that was an excellent story. So that's, mm -hmm. and then, you know, when we got back, that's when I and I <clears throat> messaged you about it to see if you would heard of it had read it and were maybe you'd want to discuss it but yeah i i, I just picked it up three weeks ago or whatever and just really liked it yeah that original short story you know it uh, by theodore sturgeon uh, you know is is really literally the the, the grandfather of uh, all the uh, swamp monsters muck monsters whatever you want to call them it even predates the heap you know as far as just being a, you know in fiction uh, obviously, this was a prose story, not a comic book story, but, you know, it does uh, predate the heat by, you know, a, a couple of years, I think. So it's it's really the first one out there. And, uh, yeah, I really uh, started looking into it when I heard about it. And I had this magazine and it's called Masters of Terror. And it's basically, you know, one of Marvel's black and white magazines that they just threw out there with a really super cool cover that uh, it's just reprints a bunch of stuff. Uh, either in black and white that already was in black and white or a story like this that was in color and they just put it out there in black and white. So kind of double dipping by Marvel, but you know, Hey, they were always trying to make a buck. Who was it? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that, that was a, a, a double buy on my part. You know, it was like, Oh, I, I already have the magazine and I have that main story. And I was like, yeah, but I'm getting close to completing the whole run of supernatural thrillers. So I got to get it. And I think I got it for, Oh boy. 
I think I might have bought it off eBay for, I think, less than 20 bucks. So, you know, at the time, I thought that was a pretty good deal because when I would see this at shows and stuff like that, it was, you know, usually in pretty good uh, condition and they were asking for more than 20 bucks for it. So I thought, well, if I paid like 10 or 15 bucks for it, you know, with the shipping, that's not terrible. And I paid 20 for my copy and it's in it's in really nice shape. I mean, the the staples in a little weird spot, but um you know, no crinkling. The the paper's really good. The, the there's no bleeding on the um the text. So I and it you know, I just thought I was just so surprised to see it. I you know, I kind of didn't think too much about that it, how much it cost. But I I'm pleased with the purchase. Yeah, that's really yeah, anytime you can be uh happy with something you grab that's uh that's a good thing because prices are you know as we know <laughs> pretty high right now but uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah supernatural thrillers number one it's a cover dated december 1972 and uh wow what a cover this is something that you know if i was a kid and i saw this oh this would have been coming home with me as long as i had the 20 cents on me because this cover is something else what do you think of this cover i it's it, i it's dynamite um you've got that big block it with the exclamation point at the top and then right to the the left of that there's a wolf howling at the moon and then as you go down the page you've got the the muck monster and he's he's green and slimy looking with and there's a big red background and a couple guys shooting him i mean it's it's really a action-packed cover but the red and the blue they just grab you it's so uh, eye-catching yeah, this is a cover by Jim Starenko, and I do love how the cover for that Masters of Terror was redone. It's very, very similar. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a carbon copy, but it's pretty close to being a carbon copy. But it was done, you know, just using this one as reference uh, and uh, done by Gray Morrow. And it's really, really good, too. But same thing, like you said, it's there's a moon in the background and these guys that are <laughs> these unnamed uh, guys are just shooting at the, the creature here. And I love along the bottom how it says the thing that couldn't die. <laughs> yeah i mean great fonts the uh you know you've got the little bit the marvel comics group and the supernatural thrillers are kind of small but and then you know theodore sturgeon's name's right there so that's cool so mm -hmm. yeah it, it's just a it's a neat looking cover yeah it's great i really like i said whether you're a kid or you're an adult if you're into comics especially horror comics you're gonna see this cover and you're gonna go ape over it <laughs> yeah so, all right, well, why don't we dive into this guy here? So this is, like we said, the, the original story is by Theodore Sturgeon, but then uh, this adaptation is uh, by Roy Thomas. Of course, he did a lot of really cool adaptations. I think he was one of the people that was really, really good at it because uh, I don't feel like it's the easiest thing in the world to do, but I think Roy was really good at uh, adapting stories. You know, he did so many of the, you know, Robert E. Howard uh, Conan tales, you know, adapted them into comics and did a fantastic job. So I think he was the right man for the job here. And, Pencils by Marie Severin, inks by Frank Giacoya, and colors, uh, not sure, but maybe Marie Severin. Also, we know she did a ton of colors and never got credit for them, but uh, uh, we'll just say probably her. And then uh, maybe we will say it's uh, a couple of combos on the letters here, Sam Rosen and then Denise Wall as well. So, uh, all right, well, why don't we jump right into this one? So uh, we got the, It, the thing that couldn't die, and uh, from uh, the Marvel fandom website here, it says, uh, The old bones of a man who committed suicide in the woods in 1929 animates a pile of vegetable matter, which develops a curiosity about the things around it. So that's basically what happens here. And I don't want to get into too much more what it says there, because that kind of gives everything away. And 
Yeah, we can we we can give that away as we uh, discover the book here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so what about this first page here? This is a really interesting layout on this first page here with the panels and then the uh, the bit of prose on the left hand side there, right? Yeah, th there's a lot of text, but the the three panels at the top where the you're first seeing the form uh, progress across those three panels is. It's really a neat way to do it. I mean, it's not a huge splash page or anything like that. Um, but the description, you know, Roy's writing um, and the, the visual of this thing coming to form and life. Um, really, really neat looking. It's really intriguing. But there is yeah. a lot of text here. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of prose um, on this page. So, I mean, it's. It's a little slow to start, but yeah. Yeah, when you if you didn't know this was a prose adaptation, you might think it was a little bit, you know, strange. But once you know it's, you know, adapted from a prose story, you're kind of thinking, well, I'm sure Roy was trying to stay as faithful as he could. And one of the ways of doing that was, you know, taking elements of the story that, you know, like we said, was a prose story and kind of, you know, el yeah, putting it in here as well to, uh, you know, help move the story along and, you know, be descriptive and stuff like that. Because like you said, this monster creature, whatever you want to call him, he's, he's very nondescript uh, inside the book. He, he doesn't have as much uh, of a humanoid look as he does on the cover on the inside. Right. He's kind of a little more amorphous. Yeah, this is, it's, it mostly looks like a very undefined man shaped thing of mud essentially i mean it, what appear to be the beginnings of arms and legs that don't look much more like stumps and a gumdrop shaped head but yeah it's <laughs> it's essentially it's it, it's just swamp gunk mm -hmm. yeah it's just kind of stuck together somehow and i do like too how it takes that whole first page and then the entire second page and even into the third page to just basically you know it, it shows you uh this monster or creature, whatever you want to call it, this muck monster, kind of uh, almost like, you know, when a, a child is uh, young and just starts to discover things and the kind of like the wonderment about, you know, discovery and stuff like that. So it seems like it's like, you know, not too scary or menacing uh, at first here, these first two pages where it's just kind of discovering, you know, uh, the world around it, let's say. But uh, then we see a, a poor dog here, Kimbo, that uh, runs afoul of this monster. And it, it never shows the monster being, uh, like, uh, let's say, evil per se. But, you know, it does do some uh, some uh, rough things to uh, watch here, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It, what I what's done really well um, in the small amount of space that Roy has here to write about it is the description of it coming to life and discovering the environment around it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only six or seven sentences, you know, spread out across what are, what do we have here? Nine, um, 15 panels. And, <clears throat> but the progression is really good because the, the, this thing learns a lot in these three pages, really. I mean, it really comes to, you get the impression that you're learning with it. And then when the, he's the dog attacks and growls and jumps at him. Yeah. It's kind of vicious and sad, but it's also this creature that just came to life. So, I mean, 
it was attacked and he reacted, right? Or it reacted. Yeah, like I said, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not this like murderous creature that's like bloodthirsty, but it has this encounter with this dog and, you know, the dog kind of does come after it because the dog's probably scared and doesn't know what the heck this thing is. And, you know, it clobbers the dog and then the dog tries to like bite at its neck and everything like that. But man, it's just, it's, it's hard to read. You know, if you're into animals or a pet owner, you know, when you see these uh, panels and then read what Roy Thomas says here, you know, it basically, you know, I don't want to say absorbs the dog, but kills it and almost like a, trying to think of how it words it it says uh, the blood was warm as sunlight was warm the liquid in the root of green things was thinner than in things that moved about and the loss of a limb did not mean loss of life the mold with a mind was neither pleased nor displeased it was merely interested so again it's it kills this poor little dog here but it's not uh, it's not thinking to myself oh i can't wait to kill this dog but it, it still does and what what's really great about the way this sequence sequence ends with what you just read and everything is now you're starting to get into the horror element of the book. Like so, okay, so it'll be, at, at the beginning, it's an interesting science experiment, right? That this this mm -hmm. mass of mud is becoming sentient, but then you get into the horror after this dog attacks it and is killed by it that the blood is warm it's sunlight was warm and equating those things as the same um you start to get a little creeped out like you know this isn't quite right the way it's behaving it's like not what we think of as being right but then again it's you know it is this un this barely intelligent being so I just like how it, the, this um, suspense and creepiness is slowly building. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like we said, the first few pages there, it doesn't really do much of anything. It almost seems childlike and it's a, you know, wonderment of the world around it. But then you see you kill this dog, like, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but it does it very quickly, very easily and very indiscriminately. So you're thinking, OK, this isn't going to be good when it meets a person, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, do you think back to the, the scene in Frankenstein where the monster meets that little girl, right? Yeah. It's similar in, in the in the idea behind it that, you know, what happened wasn't meant out of maliciousness, right? So, mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. And I love how you flip the page here, uh, and it's my favorite comic book advertisement of all time. Uh, Charles, <laughs> Atlas, Charles Atlas telling us, don't be half a man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. So, all right, well, back to the story here. So, you know, we meet a family here, and <laughs> they're kind of portrayed as, you know, your uh, typical out-in-the-woods kind of, uh, trying to give a politically correct term, like uh, hillbillies kind of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Where, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's the mom, the dad, the little girl, and then I think it's the uh, brother-in-law there, perhaps, uh, that's there. I think his name is it Alton, maybe. And, mm -hmm. uh, yep. and it's, it seems like there's a, a little bit of a tension, a little bit of tension there between him and his brother at times during the story here. But, you know, the, the story does focus on them and they talk about, uh, how the dog's missing and the dog hasn't been home and the dog's not home yet. And, uh, uncle Alton's going to go out with the shotgun here to, uh, go look for uh, the dog because it's, uh, uh, it's missing and, you know, they're thinking, Hey, maybe something bad happened here. So. He goes out with his shotgun and he's yelling and yelling, looking for the dog. And then all of a sudden he steps in some kind of crap here and he goes, 
whatever that is. I just stepped right into it. And then he looks down on the ground, and it's part of this uh, muck monster that's uh, still on the ground there, which is uh, kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <clears throat> whatever it is, I just stepped right into it. And we had seen in the previous panel, the muck monster was starting to lay down. Because um, mm-hmm. he, he says it, it, and so the thing, the thing in the wood laid down and believed itself dead. Because the, <laughs> because the sun had set, so it, it you know, there was no more light. Um, and it, it doesn't know any better, right? So the, this guy ends up stumbling right through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go to the next page and it's all over his rifle and it's all over him. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Guns and boots mostly clean now anyway. And it's so funny because, like you said, he just keeps walking. And we uh, go back to the uh, house there where these uh, uh, the farmers are here. And uh, they start kind of having a little bit of a back and forth between, uh, uh, I believe it's the husband and wife here. And uh, Corey is his name and his wife is uh, <laughs> Clissa. <laughs> which is kind of weird <laughs> but uh yeah they kind of uh you know there there seems to be some tension here throughout this whole thing with the two of them and then even with the brother um and i don't know if that's because uh you know there's a uh, you know been stuff in the past they don't really dig into that too too much here but you know they kind of have a little back and forth and uh, she says to uh cory like hey you know it, it's getting dark out it's late he doesn't come back yet like maybe you ought to go look for him and uh he goes uh you know, that he's going to eventually go out and look for him. So he eventually does. Because I guess they said, you know, not too long ago, there was a bear running around and it, you know, almost hurt the daughter, or killed the daughter and the dog. And they think, they're, you know, maybe the bear's back. <laughs> yeah. He, Corey here seems awfully angry at life in general. And yeah. he's taking it out on everybody around him. He says, maybe I should finish my chores is what cows to milk, chickens to put to bed. But that brother of mine. So. You know, he, he obviously has beef with his brother. We saw that earlier. Um, he, he He's yelling at his wife as if she's nagging him. But, yeah, yeah. They're, they're talking about the, there's bears out there. I mean, who knows what could be the problem? Yeah, But Corey, he eventually does stumble off with his gun all pissed off, right? <laughs> yeah, Corey's an interesting character. Like I said, he seems pretty miserable. And at one point, you know, like I said, his wife's trying to say, hey, maybe something's wrong. Like, you should go out there and check it out. And he's kind of like, ah, leave me alone. And then he says... Ain't nothing going to hurt Alton that a bullet can't hit. And he goes, and as for that mangy hound of his, why? And he goes, now what are you thinking about, woman? Because she's just kind of staring off. And she says, you know, about last spring, how Corey, about how Babe found a bear cub and started to carry it home. And then, you know, the the mother showed up. And that's why he's like, okay, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe something is wrong here. So he goes out into the woods. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know, he calls him. And he says, I found Kimbo. And he goes, Alton? And he goes, Kimbo's dead, Corey. Something tore him up. And he says, no bear, not nothing on four legs. Whatever done it just killed him. And then it tore him up. Come sun up. I aim to track the one who done this job on Kimbo. And when I find him, I'm going to kill him. So, yeah, not uh, not uncommon there. I mean, if, you know, yeah, again, if I had a dog and I saw something ripped it apart, I'd probably go down the same road. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he's obviously distraught. Um, his brother then accuses him of being drunk or crazy. And it's like the, the guy's dog just died. I mean, you know, maybe show a little bit of compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're drunk or crazy. Now you come home before, and he goes, you ain't tromping up these tracks for me, Corey. Now you keep back or I'll. And uh, Corey says, my gun scatters, Alton. 
And Alton says, my gun kills. <laughs> so he's like, all right, pal. So he takes off and leaves him out there. And I thought, okay, I, I don't blame you. I would have left you out there too, because, you know, I'm not getting shot over uh, you being angry about whoever or whatever killed your dog. So, uh, he goes back to the house and he goes, he turned a gun on his own brother. That's what he did. If he ever sets foot on my land again, I'll fill him full of holes. I'm like, geez, well, that's an interesting family here. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I mean, he seems um, very angry all the time. <clears throat> and then the young girl overhears that. And I don't know. She's it's uh, <clears throat> he, he's not the easiest man to live with. I'm guessing. Yeah. And uh, the daughter, uh, babe <laughs> that's all yeah. they ever call her um she yeah she's overhearing this and she's going to sleep and she's thinking you know someone needs to you know warn him so yeah next day the light comes up you know sun comes up and of course our buddy uh it is like oh nap's over you know the, the sun's back up i can you know reanimate and he stands up and there's a pretty cool panel there with the light coming through the the trees in the forest and he starts standing up straight and then uh, uh babe goes out to uh warn uh Alton, uh, Uncle Alton, I guess, that, uh, you know, Daddy's going to shoot him if he comes around again. But uh, we're not going to have to worry about that anymore, are we? No, we're not. Just to step back to that really neat panel when this, mm. the, the monster's coming, um, waking waking up. Uh, but he think, he, he's thinking to himself that he's coming back to life. There's a neat comment in here. And what about dismembered dead things? wondering if that they also would come back to life so it's going to go back and find the the dead dog to see if the dog's going to wake up right because mm -hmm. when you think about it this monster he doesn't know what life or death really is at yeah. this point um but i i, I like that the, the panels really need the way the sunshine um is shining through the woods it's a, it's a bright yellow panel um I, I just thought that was really, really a neat spot to the story. Yeah, it's it doesn't sound too scary or creepy because it is so bright, but it really is because the monster is standing there and it's just this big, you know, for lack of a better term, heap of crap standing there. Yep. And it looks creepy. Like, imagine walking around in the woods and you come upon that thing. Like, you're going to make a beeline out of there because, it again, it, it looks kind of really gross and creepy. Yeah, and there's not much form to it. Um but you can tell it's um, monstrous. <clears throat> yeah, and then uh, here we here we go with uh, Alton. So he finds it and uses his shotgun and blasts a few holes through it, and it basically does nothing to him. So he decides he's gonna do the uh, you know full frontal assault here and uses the butt of the gun to smash it in the head. But again, it does nothing because it's really just a pile of you know muck and crap so it's not like bullets or a gun's really gonna hurt it he's just swinging away with his gun there and it does no good right yeah and he, you can tell that it, he's obviously um upset from the day before um he the the look of anger on his face as he's smashing into this creature is um intense and the the creature's thinking to itself it, it doesn't know what's really going on and again it's it's only reacting to what's happening to it the way it did with the dog mm -hmm. um it, but it, the, the the uh 
text is 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 good here. It had merely wondered why the man acted this way. It had been curious, and when it was curious, it did things, and that's just so ominous. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's from a point of innocence, but it's it's there's something just really menacing about the that that just that little bit of um, thinking there. Yeah, just to think that there's, you know, if you're a dog or a human being and you come upon something, you don't know what it is. And it just being curious uh, is going to kill you. That, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we see a babe here and she's running around the woods looking for her uncle. And um, then uh, we see uh, <laughs> he goes, uh, we see Corey running towards uh, the house. And he goes, Clissa, get babe inside while I grab my gun. Alton's gone off his nut. Probably killed a man up there. And she goes, Corey. And he goes, what's wrong? What, didn't you hear him? So I guess, you know, it's not too far away from the house that they heard the gunshots. And she's like, Corey, babe's gone. And he's got this, you know, really, you know, distressed look on his face. And he goes running out in the woods after her, yelling for her and yelling for her. And she goes, gee, he sounds mad. I better not answer him till I warn Uncle Alton. <laughs> <laughs> so she kind of knows she's in a little bit of hot water, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it, well, when we get to it, it, the story does have a little bit of a, a creepy turn where it comes to to babe there but mm-hmm. i but again the monster here um it learns no dismembered dead things did not live again not dogs not men so now we know alton alton's dead this thing's killed it um the everybody in the woods has heard the shots from alton's gun so it's mm-hmm. just going to attract more attention <clears throat> so yeah. the story's really i mean it it's been slow moving it what's nice about this is it's not a short story it's, it's the whole comic so it but it really builds the tension um slowly and it's it's ramping up nicely yeah if this was in like an anthology book it, it would be completely different and i i dare to say probably not quite as good just because like you said it is a slow burn but you can feel something's building here that's you know it's already killed a dog and a man just because it was curious like what if it does eventually you know, have the uh, uh, aptitude to get angry or upset, uh, or you hurt yeah. it, it feels pain. Then what's going to happen then? <laughs> you know, something yeah. pretty, pretty crazy. But I love this part where uh, our buddy Corey here, he's out looking for babe, and he's like, come on out, you come on out, I'll, or by heaven, I'll shoot. And I'm thinking, what if it's your daughter, dude? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, I warned you, I ain't doing it twice. <laughs> Crack. And he shoots at like this pile of like, like a, uh, you know, a bush or something like that. And this guy jumps out. My hand, you shot me. Please, no more. I didn't do it. Please don't shoot me again. And Corey's like, who the devil? And it's just this, like, you know, goony-looking business guy in, like, a suit with a briefcase full of stuff. And this part of the story is absolutely crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, this this was the, you know, everything up until this point, um, it makes sense as to why the things are happening, right? So this monster's come to mm-hmm. life. The dog attacked it. It killed the dog. This family goes out to look for who killed the dog, right? Well, Mm -hmm. now we get to this point. Well, like you said, this guy in a three-piece suit, tie and briefcase, (laughs) is out in these woods hiding in the bushes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's we haven't heard, we haven't seen anybody in a car. So we know we're in a, a very rural place. And here's this. I, he ends up being a lawyer or something, right? Isn't that what he is? Or a private eye, I forget. Something, um, yeah. 
but yeah, then there's this guy in the suit in the bushes. So this is the 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 craziest part of what of a story that so far has made sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I mean it will uh, you know circle back at the end here, but yeah. for right now you're kind of thinking, what is this weird random element here? This is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't sure. turn. It doesn't turn out to be random at the end, but we'll we'll get there. But yeah, the guy says that you know, oh hey, I I heard yelling and a gun and some screaming and this and that, so I looked over and I saw a dead man and I ran away, and then you shot me. So he's basically saying, you know, he he saw you know what was left of Alton from his uh, encounter with the uh, the monster here, the muck monster, it and. He says, uh, you're shut up. You're not making any sense besides your trespassing. And he says, now you say there's a dead man up there. I'll take a look and see uh, you. Uh, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm looking for someone, Roger Kirk. And he says, Roger Kirk, never heard of him. And this guy says, of course not. He's been dead since 1929. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, this story was written around like 1940, I think, 39, 40, somewhere in there. So I guess. That's, you know, it's written in the times it's in. So uh, 11 years ago, maybe. And he yep. says, uh, but his grandson left this will last year. You see, it says that anybody who finds Roger Kirk's body to bury it in the family plot gets a big pile of money. I read all about it in this clipping here. So I don't know if they put a uh, something in a newspaper to say, hey, you know, we're, we want to find this missing family member of ours and bury him on the family plot. And there's like a reward. And <laughs> uh, Corey says, I don't care about that, but how'd you figure to recognize a man that's been dead for, oh, I'm sorry, for dead for 40 years? So this is 1969, I'm guessing then, right? 29 and 40? Yep. Okay, so he goes, he can't be more than a skeleton by now. And <laughs> this guy says, it says he was 5'5", five, five, and his left arm had been broken once, and there's a silver plate set into his skull. <laughs> so that's how, even if he finds a bag of bones, he's going to know it's this guy. And he says, he disappeared around here right after the stock market crash. His grandson was the last of the line, so he left his crazy will. So that's why this guy's, in a, again, in a three-piece suit running around in the forest. I'm thinking, why don't you put on, like, a little bit more comfortable clothes there to go do this, pal? Yeah, I mean, you're you're hunting for a body, or what you assume is, is a body, um, 40 years after the fact. I would think you'd be in jeans, maybe have a jacket and a shovel with you. <laughs> maybe a flashlight you know yeah um, he, he's ill prepared for this <laughs> but but what this does do is it does set up what uh, you know eventually we're going to learn is, is the the essence of the muck monster but it's <clears throat> this is the essentially the first time um we're getting a monster is from uh a dead person, right? I mean, yeah. Up until now, you don't have Swamp Thing and Man Thing and all those stories, right? So you get this nice little piece here, right in the middle of the story of this monster is going to be somehow be derived from this dead guy, and that's that's pretty horrifying, you know, mm -hmm. when you just sit back and think about it, right? Yeah, and I love that middle panel on that page too. After uh, Corey tells this knucklehead that, hey. Uh, my house is just down this pathway here. My wife will help you with your hand that I just shot. Um, but don't tell her anything about the dead guy you saw. And he's like, okay, pal. And how about these panels here? The middle panel and then those bottom four panels where, you know, this guy starts uh, walking back through the woods here. And then there's the monster right behind him. Yeah. The, the, so the, the <laughs> monster's somewhat behind him. 
and then in the next panel it's closer and then it finally catches up to him and he he screams and runs away but it it's really cool because you don't even see the whole thing in those last three panels you just see the what what is passing for the arm at this point right yeah an arm and a hand there it's it's really weird and just grabs his briefcase and there's all these papers and crap that far, start falling out, and then he just takes off running, <laughs> screaming, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but then back to Corey here, and he ends up seeing his uh, uh, brother there uh, dead. Now it doesn't show whatever's left of his brother since the you know the the monster creature, whatever you want to call him. He uh, you know does whatever he does to these people. I don't know if he like kind of you know, rips, just rips them apart physically or, you know, some kind of secretion that kind of eats them away or something, but it looks pretty awful. So, uh, the brother like, uh, basically faints right there in the, right there in the forest. Yeah. And it, what the horror is off the page here. It's off the panel. Mm-hmm. So we're, we only get Corey's face and the description of what's going through his mind and what he sees. Um, which I think is a really neat effect because, I mean, we're still in the 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 code era at this point. I mean, things had loosened quite a bit, but the the horror being off panel just adds to the the suspense of it all because we know the dog was ripped apart, right? It, it describes mm-hmm. that, but we don't know exactly what happened to Alton. We don't know what shape he was in. You know, did. Did it melt his flesh off? Is it a, you know, muscle, a, a tissue and skeleton that he sees? So it's all left up to our imagination, and that it it works really well here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and <laughs> he finally wakes up, and we did get a shot of Babe. She's just running around the woods, having a good time. Um, but he finally wakes up, and he's like, "I'm going to track this, you know, what's going on here." Uh, and he finds uh, the remnants of the briefcase and he's like, there's muck all over it. And what's going on? And whoever murdered Alton, but what? And he's like, over here, another set of prints, but not the little man's. No, they look more like, Oh God, they are. It's babe. So he's now able to, you know, track his daughter because she left some tracks and she's running around out here. And uh, it doesn't take uh, her long though. And she runs like right into the monster, which is really creepy scene. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's hiding out in this cave waiting for um, Uncle Alton to show up because she, she doesn't know he's he he's been killed or anything. So she's in this cave waiting for him, having her lunch or whatever. And then yeah, the monster's outside the cave and she screams. So she's trying to get away from it back mm-hmm. into this small crevice. So. Mm-hmm. And that panel, it's it's very claustrophobic. You can tell mm. she's got no space, um, and yet there's this, you know, very sh- not shapeless, but very ill-defined form, just staring at her, tr- and it's it's coming into her space, and mm-hmm. it it it's intense in the. The fact that it's so well drawn that you know she's uncomfortable in these rocks in this confined spot and that this horrific thing is just coming slowly towards her, um, you know, inch by inch or whatever. And it's it is really quite horrific, right? 
Yeah, and it's interesting, that top panel where she screams, it, it looks like she's got a bit of a Gil Kane face going on there. I just looked at that, and I thought, huh, that looks like Kane to me. Yeah, yeah I, I could see that. Yeah, but yeah, it's just this big lumbering thing, and you know, of course, it's going to scare the crap out of anybody, and us as the reader, we're thinking, okay, she's dead, because it's only encountered two other you know, living things, and you know, whether it wanted to or not, it, it killed them. You know, it didn't kill the crazy uh, guy in the three-piece suit because he hightailed it out of there. But it's got her backed into this, you know, like I said, it's like crevice here. And at first it looks like it's too big to get in there, but it's just made of a bunch of like, you know, porous material. So it just keeps like squeezing and squeezing and squeezing its way in there. And it keeps getting closer and closer. And, you know, just like uh, when you watch a movie and that the killer's uh, getting closer and closer to a victim it's it's a really creepy scene there on page 22, and then it finally reaches in at her, and it gets just close enough, and it grabs her by the hair, and it looks really creepy. Yeah, and in that, the middle panel, you see just the arm getting closer, mm. and it, then it brought up one thick arm up, and it reached. And the, the, the description of what's happening is just, it's slowly, slowly... Um, reaching toward this young girl and the fear on her face in these panels is is really it's just excellent though you can tell she's scared um she's not screaming and and then yeah when this thing grabs her it's like oh god i can't believe it got her you know yeah it's just like you can imagine being a little kid and this happening to you it would be like wow and holy crap so it grabs a hold of her and pulls her out of this crevice by her hair and on page 26, it's standing there, and it looks like humongous compared to her. Like, it's holding her up by her hair, and she looks unconscious in there, but uh, it does kind of, like, I don't know, yanks on her, like, or swings her around or something like that, and she screamed, and it says, The monster did not mind. It merely held her and watched. And when it had learned all it could from her screaming, it dropped her jarringly to shuffle around the half cave, ignoring her. And I just thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why, you know, the dog, you know, kind of attacked it. The guy kind of attacked it. So maybe if you just don't do anything, it wouldn't kill you. You know, you kind of play dead. It would leave you alone. I don't know. But she uh, escapes uh, death here. Yeah. And, you know, it, it drops her. It gets interested in her lunchbox. Um, <laughs> and but it 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 says, where is it? And when it learned all it could from her screaming, it dropped her jarringly. So mm -hmm. she didn't attack it. She's not she, she's not being portrayed as, you know, flailing about mm -hmm. uh, or anything. She, her, her, her she's essentially limp mm -hmm. uh, after being swung around the way she was. Um, so, yeah, it didn't she didn't hurt the beast. So it didn't have any reason to, you know, defend itself or hurt her. Right. Yeah, and it, like you said, it grabs her lunchbox and like squashes it. And I love that bottom middle panel there. She's like the Flash, man. She goes running out of that cave like crazy, and uh, jumps in the water and swims away. And it is interesting. It's uh, it. I don't know if I, I shouldn't say you know the artwork did a bad job here or anything like that. The artwork looks good, but from one page it shows her swimming away from like a shoreline, and then coming up on another shoreline, but it doesn't look like the monster tried to come across the water, but she picks up this, you know, pretty big rock and, uh, she chucks it at him and it kind of hits him like 
right in one of his legs and you know it's just made of you know junk and muck and this and that so it, it kind of puts the creature off balance and it falls into the stream it says and i thought okay it's just gonna you know swim across the stream to where she's at and it's gonna be like well now you attacked me so you know now i'm gonna kill you but she takes off running and the dad's you know hollering for her and he eventually uh catches up to her and that's when we get that uh you know, crazy final page or final page of the uh, monster there with that exposition. Speak on that. Yeah, so he catches her, and she's, she's still terrified. Mm-hmm. But now this is the first time we actually see Corey being not an, not an angry, you know, antagonistic person. He's mm-hmm. trying to comfort his daughter, who's obviously been terrified. Yeah. Uh, and then we... Back to the stream, the muck monster's in the water, um, and it says it neither liked nor disliked this new element, but merely rested on the bottom, its massive head a foot beneath the surface. So it's it's just below the water in this stream. Like, if, if you were to walk by, you would see this shape, or, you know, the young babe would. She'd recognize it <laughs> as the thing that attacked her. Yeah. Um, but then it, <clears throat> we get this great description of it is essentially um, dying, but not dying's not the right word. But it's it's the monster decided to stay and observe this new thing, which was after all very interesting. And that's what's moved the monster along every throughout the story is that it's interested in the things it's learning. Right. Mm-hmm. So here it is just washing away in this river um and then so there's some more of that and then we see finally the the skeleton that we learned about from the the weirdo in the three-piece suit right (laughs) and you could see the the silver plate in its head um on the the river bottom so Mm -hmm. and that's when we learn it the monster was this guy and we never learned what animated it or anything what caused this to happen if it was you know toxic waste or fracking we don't we don't know it just happened and that kind of adds to the horror element of it yeah um, that <clears throat> yeah this this thing came out of the the water uh, learned what it learned about life killed some things and returned and it, uh, it's just so well told uh, mm-hmm and then that that last panel with the skeletons really just really cool, you know the the monster's oh, yeah. gone and we see the man beneath it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as the last bit of the stuff washed away, it says, and so the monster melted, dirtying the water, and soon the water was clean again, washing and washing the skeleton that the monster had left. The skeleton with the ball, the badly healed knot on the left arm, and the gleaming silver plate set into the pale skull. Yes, the skeleton was very clean now. The brook laughed about it for an age. So, yeah, really, really creepy there. But like you said, was it, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a biological thing? Was it supernatural? Like, yeah, we never get the answer to that. And it's not that you really need it either because the story's over with and it, you know, washed away. But, hey, what if all that junk washes are done downstream onto something else and animates something else? That'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what's great about it. It's like. We don't we don't need the answer. We know what happened. There was a beginning, middle, and end. Um, but it just it's like that's you know the the body being viewed off panel. The, those unanswered questions 
really left to your imagination or what um, just makes it so horrific and, and um, such a good story. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. And then I guess, you know, you know, everybody knew something was going on out there. So they got a bunch of men together, went out in the woods looking for, you know, whatever scared the crap out of her, whatever killed uh, this one and that one. So uh, they end up finding the skeleton and it says, but they never learned about how it had crawled out of the hot, damp, uh, mold a monster and then we see uh poor babe she uh, is just having these like you know nightmares that are just waking her up and just driving her basically insane yeah she, she's obviously got you know ptsd there from being attacked by this thing and of course she does she's only a little girl the thing the thing brutalized her left her alive but it still hurt her terrified her and by now she knows that it you know, it killed her uncle and her uncle's dog and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really crazy. And, you know, even then you see, you know, the, the dad there, Corey, going to bed at night. He's even uh, uh, looking like a little afraid. And, you know, we, it says, you know, uh, about uh, the daughter still screaming at night. And uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty grim. You know what I mean? You're thinking, like, this thing killed, you know, a guy killed a dog, you know, terrorized his family there's a little girl it's like i mean what is she 10 years old and then now she's probably gonna live the rest of her life you know uh really really you know mentally not in a good place yeah and the way this story ends this this one page i mean it's not an epilogue but you know they get the check for finding this guy so they got the money right Mm -hmm. but they're still not happy and then these last two panels are dynamite the 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 parents at night sleeping and babe still screams at night and then you see her standing by the tree and has grown very thin. I, I, it's just an excellent ending. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we enjoy horror comics, horror movies. So we're used to not having happy endings, right? But this, yeah. still, this still hits you. I mean, you know, because essentially the, the main characters lived, they survived, and they got a, a reward. But their lives still are they'll never be the same right so it's mm-hmm. it just an excellent excellent ending yeah it's it's one of those ones that i you know i've read this story uh the comic book adaptation several times i, I definitely want to sit down at some point and uh get a copy of the the, the pro story and read that because it's really that good i can't imagine that that story the pro story is probably even better just because it's you know uh, spread out over a, a lot more pages Oh, yeah, it, it it definitely made me want to read that story because Roy does a fantastic job of writing the the monster's experiences, right? R- writing um, mm-hmm. what it what it's doing, what's what it's thinking. But he's he's very limited to, you know, a couple sentences on a page because you have to put these pictures in here, which were excellent. The art throughout was dynamite. But. To read the short story, that it's got to be so much more well developed, mm-hmm. you know, where where we get the gist of everything here, and done really well. Um, but mm-hmm. that short story, I bet, is really good. Yeah, absolutely. That's like I said, I, I definitely got to check that out. And yeah, it, like I said, it's also in that uh, it's uh, Masters of Terror uh, from uh, 1975 magazine. Uh, there were only two issues of it. And it was the first issue and. Uh, don't let uh, the fact that the cover is very similar on the magazine and that story is in here uh, as well. Uh, 
basically uh, take you out of it. Uh, don't think, oh, well, I have that already because this magazine is really, really good. I mean, like really good. It has that story that's like, I don't know, 25 pages maybe. It has a uh, an adaptation from a Robert E. Howard story called The Horror from the Mound, which is really good. It's Gardner Fox doing the adaptation. And the artworks by Frank Brunner, who's, you know, one of my wow, uh, all time favorites. And then uh, uh, the terrible old man and H.P. Lovecraft story by Roy Thomas, uh, Barry Windsor Smith, Dan Adkins and John Verporten. You know, again, you can't go wrong with a, a team like that. It's like <laughs> and then my favorite uh, horror comic book story of all time. It's called The Drifting Snow. It's a story uh, by August Derleth, and it was adapted by Tony Isabella and Esteban Morato. And, oh, man, it's just a real crazy, good, moody story about, you know, these crazy vampires out in the woods. It's like, you know, there's it's like a, a story where there's people at this house and they're snowed in. And, oh, it's really, really good. So, yeah, get the magazine if you can, too. Don't don't think, oh, well, I have that already because there's so much more in that. Yeah, I, I would definitely check that out. And this must have looked really good. It, I mean, in a color comic, it's really excellent. But I bet it was really intense in black and white, too, right? Because that, that's a black and yes. white magazine. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I think both versions are great. The black and white one, I mean, <coughs> I, I could see why some people would say maybe it's better just because I think, you know, black and white does lend itself a little bit more to horror than color does sometimes. But not all the time, but sometimes. And since this story didn't have anything that was dependent on you seeing the color, it does work pretty well in black and white. Yeah. And, and with so much being left up to your, your mind's eye, mm-hmm. uh, it, I, I could see that working really well in either, in either case, color or black and white. Um, but yeah, what a good story. And when I finished it, I would, I, I thought to myself, now, now that's a really good horror comic right there, and, and mm-hmm. Roy Thomas was, like you said, he did a lot of adaptations with all you know, the Robert E. Howard stuff, but he was really good at bringing that literary life to a comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He was something else. I don't think you know. I know a lot of people do give Roy a lot of credit, but sometimes I still feel like he kind of gets. You know, it pushed aside a little bit, which to me is crazy because he was so good at Marvel and they went to D.C. and did so many good things. So, yeah, I think he needs to be one of those people that's at the top of the food chain when you think about comics. And then especially when you think about, you know, how uh, late Silver Age and then early Bronze Age, you know, the the people like him that started to kind of, uh, you know, bring comics into more of a modern age, more so than just, oh, they're, you know. 10 or 15 cent books for, you know, a 10 year old kid. So I think he definitely should get a, a ton of credit for that. Yeah. And he really bridged that gap, that gap. He bridged the, the Stanley era mm-hmm. into the bronze age for Marvel, almost single-handedly, right. With the, with the number of comics he was writing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, he gets, he does get a lot of, crap sometimes because he's so wordy or whatever um but i i i just love his writing yeah this is a a standout example of it yeah yeah this is something you don't ever hear anybody talk about really but it's again great adaptation by roy and yeah he was a figure he he moved right into being the editor there uh, editor-in-chief after stan lee moved uh, out of that position and 
he was in there for, you know, not for a ton of time, but a few years. And I think that was some of Marvel's best stuff when he was there because, you know, he, uh, as long as he saw you knew what you were doing and you were going to get the work in, uh, he let them alone, you know, like he would leave people alone that, uh, he saw like, Hey, they know what they're doing. They don't need, need me lording over them. And he would give people uh, control over their own stuff, which was great. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, man. Well, that's going to wrap us up here. So, uh, if anybody's looking for you out there, I know they can find you on Twitter and uh, Instagram and then on your blog, too, as well, right? Yep. Yeah. Comics, comics, comics stuff, blog. Those are all great places to find me. Um, hey, thanks for having me on again. I was uh, super excited when you when you said you wanted to talk about this book, because having just read it, and I was so impressed by it that uh, it, it, would, it was something I thought would be fun to talk about with you. And I was right. Oh, yeah, man. This is great. Thanks for being on. I really, really enjoyed this. I love all these supernatural thrillers ones. I did. Uh, I mean, as of this recording, uh, till this comes out, you, uh, people listening would have already heard it. I uh, talked about the first uh, two appearances in this uh, title of uh, Encantu, the Living Mummy, with a uh, uh, super blog team up uh, friend of ours, Ed Moore. So uh, I think he and I are going to continue and cover the rest of those. And then. There's these other ones in between here, too, uh, that's, uh, you know, this title focused, it would switch to a different character every, uh, with every issue. And there's like, you know, Invisible Man and Headless Horseman and all these really cool things. So, yeah, I, uh, I really love this title. I thought it was really, really good. Was it, was this one collected? I haven't looked. Marvel did put out some kind of horror collection. I don't think there was ever one with just that stuff in it, but they're definitely, they definitely did collect all the living mummy stuff that was in, uh, Oh gosh, I think in, there's an essential out of Marvel horror and they covered all the living mummy stuff. But as far as all these ones go, the, the single issues where it was a different character in each story, I don't think they've been collected yet. Uh, not that I know of anyway, if anybody out there, okay. knows, Hey, let me know. But, well, yeah. Very good. I'll have to do some research. Yeah, definitely check it out. Like I, like I said, I love, I have the essential Marvel horror. There were two volumes of that. And that's got some brother voodoo in there and it's got, you know, the living mummy in there. A lot of the more offbeat stuff that, you know, wasn't like right out in the forefront, like Tomb of Dracula and World by Night and stuff like that. So it was really cool to see that stuff uh, reprinted. Nice. All right, man. I uh, thank you once again for being on. This was a blast and uh, looking forward to more in the future. Yes, me too. Thank you. All right, man. I'm going to step out right now and then come back to wrap up the show. I had never met him. Uh, all I had seen him was his public performances, and he seemed to me a, uh, a strange and mystical figure. I had no idea where he lived or anything about him, where he came from, whether the accent was even real or it was put on. Uh, I knew nothing about him except that he was absolutely compelling to me. And then I got uh, one of the two records he made. Uh, the first record, which has a story by Clark Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith on it, and on the other side, I believe, is one of Lovecraft's stories. Plus, there were four of Teddy's own monologues. And uh, I played it over and over and over again until I wore it out, an LP. And then I had to buy another one. And that was impossible to find in those days before the Internet because you had to go to old vinyl dealers. And uh, an album like that was just very, very rare. In 1957, I used to go and hear him. He was not Brother Theodore then. He was just Theodore. There was a passion. There was a 
mystical quality, an arcane depth to him that absolutely froze in place an entire audience. People who, who want, they couldn't even laugh. They couldn't even laugh. I mean, it was hilarious stuff, but you couldn't even laugh for fear of this power encompassing you. He, he was absolutely the most paralyzingly compelling performer I've ever seen. He said this, he said, you know, Harlan, you and I are very much alike. And I said, how's that, Teddy? He insisted I call him Teddy. And I said, how is, how is that? How are we very much alike? He says, well, when women first meet us, they are enchanted. There is a magic to us. We are high verbal, and we have ideas, and there is scintillance. The sparks fly off us, and they love it, and they see the strength, and they see the passion, and they say, yes, I must cleave to this. I must cling to this. I want to be a part of this, and they do, and they are with us for a day and a month, perhaps a year, and then they say, when will he shut up? When will he stop? And they run shrieking into the streets. Well... I thought I was going to have an infarct on the spot. Uh, I came to despise David Letterman very early on because he treated Teddy with uh, disrespect. He had one of the great uh, raconteurs, one of the great uh, uh, speakers of our time, uh, a, a, a wit and a brilliance unparalleled. And he treated him as if he were a freak instead of perceiving the grandeur in him and going along with him and enhancing him and using him more often. Uh, this was Teddy's only access to any kind of publicity for a very long while. And uh, so he had to, if not kowtow, at least uh, 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 mitigate to Letterman's rude behavior. All right, everybody, that wraps up this episode. I want to thank Jeremiah for being on the show. Uh, great guest, great guy. Uh, definitely check out his blog. And anytime he's involved with Superblog Team Up, definitely give that a look too. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll catch you next time. See ya.